Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. And today it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Uwe Goudat from Geneva in Switzerland. Uwe studied biochemistry at Britain's University of East Anglia. Uwe obtained his medical degrees at the Philips University in Marburg, Germany, and then his doctoral thesis at the same institution. He served his residency at the Heinrich Heiner University in Dusseldorf, Germany. I very much enjoyed sampling the Altbier when visiting the Altstadt in that city. I'm sorry for that reminiscence, but every time I see the name Dusseldorf, I think back to that very lovely trip. Uwe eventually became licensed in internal medicine and then subspecialized in metabolic disorders, focusing on diabetes. Dr. Goodat then worked as a research physician with the Lilly Company in Germany and moved into the pharmaceutical industry full-time in clinical development and most recently drug safety and pharmacovigilance. He served a number of world-renowned companies like Novartis and Merck Serono and now has his own pharma enterprise. Uwe is married, has three children and tells me that he's always keen on warm weather so he can get back out on Lake Geneva on his sports catamaran and kayak. I'm really thrilled to welcome Dr. Uwe Goodat. Thank you very much, Jonathan. It's, it's really a pleasure to be here, and thank you very much for the invitation. Well, I, I wish we could actually be sitting on your sports catamaran on Lake Geneva. And, and well, What's the weather like in Geneva? I'm in a rather overcast London at the moment. No, weather's here. Weather's absolutely beautiful. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. The sun's shining. Not a lot of wind, though. That's, that's a bit of the issue when, the, uh, yeah. when, it, when it warms up, then you don't have that many thermal currents. And so the, the sailing, it's more kayak weather than it is uh, catamaran weather. Righty-ho. Well, thanks for rubbing that in. I, I really appreciate <laughs> that. So uh, I think it's always good to start at the beginning with an origin story. What took you to East Anglia into biochemistry, medicine, diabetes, and then the pharmaceutical business? So if you will, my first question for you is, what's your life story? That's an easy one. <laughs> I, I guess most of our life stories are easy. Um, in, in my particular instance, my father worked for the German airline Lufthansa, and we lived in several parts of the world. So as a child and an adolescent, I obviously followed my father through his professional stationing. And I finished school sitting A-levels rather than the German Abitur. And I needed to have A-levels accepted for access to German universities. And that took about a year. And then the other thing was my English was probably better than my German at the time. And so I was I applied to what was then called UCA. I think it has a different uh, name yes. today. University Central Council on Admissions or something. I went through the same thing. Exactly. And then, well, I was quite keen on medicine. I applied for medicine in the UK, but obviously as a German citizen, so I, I didn't have any hope. And I, I went through UCA clearing and I got an, an offer for going to um, University of East Anglia to study biochemistry. And, and I was very, very interested in both biology and chemistry. And so that worked out really quite well. And I very much enjoyed UEA. And on an aside, one of my tutors at the time was Professor D.D. Davies, who was a co-worker of, of Hans Krebs, the, the man behind the citric acid cycle. It was, it was, a, it was a wonderful experience. 
Anyway, while I was at UEA, my father was always quite keen to, to have a doctor in the family. And so I signed up for an aptitude test in Germany. And I almost missed going because the invitation to the test was sent to Kuwait, where my father was stationed at the time. But anyway, somehow I, I found out about it. And I went to do the aptitude test, didn't do too badly, and was accepted into medical school in, in Marburg, Germany. And, and in Marburg, you just get assigned a medical school. And that's where I went. I started a thesis in medical psychology. Well, I want to come on to that. So I'll tell you what, skip over your thesis, because I'm going to come on to your thesis. Fascinated me. But yeah, what took you into to the endocrine world? Because your thesis doesn't suggest really that was the way you were going. Yeah, well, it, is, it doesn't and it doesn't. And you'll see that there is actually a link because the, the thesis was in medical psychology and I was really interested in patient education and behavioral medicine. That was really where the thesis was coming for. And I still have a passion for learning and teaching. And that comes back to, to some of the things that I'm doing today. Anyway, the thesis evolved and took a, a greater tack towards medical decision making and the normative and subjective aspects that are associated with the decisions we make in medicine, both on the side of the physicians and the healthcare practitioners and professionals, as much as the patients. And diabetes is a disease which involves a lot of decision-making also on the basis of the patients. And it was really, diabetes seemed to be a natural choice when looking at behavioral medicine, because it's an exemplary disease where patients need to self-manage themselves. And from patient education and having worked in patient education and diabetes, at the time, the University of Dusseldorf, the Medizinische Klinik E, that was led by Professor Berger, and it was a WHO collaborating center in diabetes education. And so there comes the link again. So essentially, the theme at the time was behavioral medicine, diabetes as a self-managed disease, and patient education as the bridge, to a certain extent, to self-management. And so that's how I got to Dusseldorf, and, and I very much enjoyed it there, and I really enjoyed also the, the whole topic around, as I said, behavioral medicine. It's interesting, Uwe, sorry to interrupt you, but, you know, whenever one asks these stories, it's always punctuated with a professor or two or three who were there who influenced people, because I certainly had the same experience. And it really is, you know, I tell young people who are thinking about going into med school, to keep your eyes open for those people who are role models and who, you know, there's something about them. They have that it factor that makes you want to please them, makes you want to emulate them. Can we come on to, to your thesis? Because it's a perfect segue, actually. I've always been fascinated by the phenomenon of, of patients turning up at our offices, doctor's office, and they're not doing what we recommend, non-compliance. And your doctoral thesis was at the Institute of Psychology in Marburg, and you studied non-compliance in patients with type 2 diabetes. And the title begged the question whether this was a rational phenomenon. I'd love you to explain that because diabetes is, my goodness, as you say, it's a self-managed disease and the consequences of getting it wrong are pretty grim. Yeah, I think one of the really, really important things, and thanks for the question, <laughs> it's, it's exciting to go back in time. Remember that this thesis was written before UKPDS, which was an epical diabetes study reported. This was a study that was looking at long-term management of diabetes, I think over 10 or 15 years. So it was actually the study that was trying to prove that managing glucose control really did matter 
in type 2 diabetics. And, and at the time when this thesis was written, UK PDS, the main report, the main outcomes had not been reported. So we were at the time our philosophy was to manage glucose under the premise that diabetes was a condition that the hallmark of which was elevated blood glucose concentrations. And what we then did was we applied inverse logic and said, okay, if the condition has complications such as retinopathy and end-stage renal disease that we really want to prevent, and it is associated with high blood glucose, then lowering blood glucose should actually solve the problem. But as we know today, that inverse logic and inverse reasoning isn't always the case. Today, we have, I I think, a more differentiated understanding of medicine and equally of diabetes. Subsequently, UKPDS showed, yes, that lowering blood glucose does reduce macrovascular disease, although at the time it was sort of contentious because in type 2 diabetic patients, contentious because the p-value was 0.52 rather than than 0.05. And that's an interesting phenomenon because it was at the time I was already interested in, in, you know, what is evidence, what is compelling evidence, and and where does all this p-value and all this stuff come from, and what does it really tell us? And it was fascinating to see how we we were struggling with the evidence because we were unwilling to think beyond the methods that that we applied and the limitations of the methods that we applied. And and p-value is still one of my pet peeves. Anyway, so going back to compliance, I guess... You know, coming from behavioral medicine, one of the issues that I was was contemplating was why do people do what they do and why should they do what the doctor tells them? In, in other words, I think, you know, and once again, this is 30 years ago. So the doctor-patient relationship has evolved. You know, the Internet's made a tremendous difference. But I think the important thing was that doctor-patient relationship at times was still quite patronizing and doctors sort of seemed to know better. And I'm not saying that they don't, but it, we, we sometimes forget as practitioners that there's a lot more going on in a patient's life than, than their health. And yes, health is essential to be able to do all the other things that you want to do, but it's not the only thing. In other words, we're competing with all the other things that drawing attention from a patient. And I think the vaccine hesitancy issue that we're seeing most recently in terms of COVID also shows that just because we say so doesn't mean that anybody believes so. And so my topic was to reflect upon why and when recommendations are followed. And I actually you know, at the core was the health belief model by Rosenstock. And that was also where I had my first contact with Bayes' theorem, which is something that I'm very much involved in at the moment. And it's often very worthwhile in medicine and in life in general to turn a question around, which is what all what Bayes' theorem is essentially about, which is about inverse conditional probabilities. And so I was, was looking at compliance from the inverse perspective. Why do patients actually do what doctors tell them? Why should they? I mean, what, what's the reason for that? And I guess at the heart of human behavior, I believe, are expectations. In other words, of rewards and, and risks and utilities. In other words, what's in it for me if I do this as opposed to if I don't do this? And it all fits into place and becomes rational, I think, if I'm going back to what I said before. The drugs we had at the time were, were mo- mainly sulfonylureas. And, and UK PDS actually subsequently showed that the sulfonylureas were probably not that good drugs for managing blood glucose control and that they led to worsening of beta cell function. And thus, in, in a certain extent, while they managed short-term blood glucose control, probably drove the condition forward. So as I said, it's medicine is complicated. 
And in the context of all the ifs and buts and whens, sometimes patients' decision-making, even if they don't do what we tell them to do, may be justifiable. I, I think that's, that was what the thesis, to a certain extent, was, was all about. That's a really interesting premise, and one I, I have to admit I'd never... You know, as you're answering, I'm thinking, why should they do what we tell them to? Well, because we know what we're talking about. But, you know, there's the old aphorism that five years after you leave medical school, 50% of what you learn will be proven to be untrue. So maybe we don't know what we're talking about. But that's really, really interesting. I'd like to stay on that theme because also a similar number of years ago, you wrote a paper that stated that good metabolic control pays off with less retinopathy eye disease in those with, with, with insulin-dependent uh, diabetes. And there have been countless reports since then. And I remember going to a non-medical conference where the guest speaker happened to be an insulin-dependent di- diabetic who was also a top, top athlete and talked about how assiduously they managed their diabetes. So much effort goes into every other aspect of diabetes management or other chronic disease management Shouldn't we be doing more to put the onus on patients to own their disease? Because it's a knock-on effect. There's a huge burden on the healthcare system. And we know that tight glycemic control, proper control of diabetes can help enormously. What can we do better as a society? Take the medicine out of it, do we? Okay, so this goes back to the story of behavioral medicine. And this is where I started off with, because self-management is essential for chronic conditions of this nature. And at the time in, in Dusseldorf, we were looking not only at diabetes. I mean, that, that was, as I said, WHO, Collaborating Center for Diabetes Education. So that was a focus of attention. But above and beyond that, we were also looking at patient education programs for other chronic disease, such as asthma and chronic obstructive lung disease, or even hypertension, which is the bridge to cardiology. And it was in interesting that the self-management of hypertension at the time wasn't really getting the acceptance that we expected. So this was all about patients measuring their blood pressure on a daily basis, you know, several times a day, and then potentially very much similar to what was done analogously to what we were doing in, in diabetes was with insulin therapy, was that the patients would adjust their therapy. In other words, they'd have you know, often a patient with essential hypertension had several drugs, and then they could reduce the dose or, or leave one drug out depending on, on what blood pressure was at the moment. So it's much more dynamic approach to self-management. And as I said, in the context of disease, behavioral medicine, and also in the terms of biofeedback, where we're very similar to measuring blood glucose and adjusting the insulin dose accordingly by measuring your blood pressure and adjusting your, your medication accordingly, you, you, you were sort of had a, a biofeedback loop. But the paper that you're alluding to is actually an interesting paper because it's, it's almost the opposite. Because this paper was all about an observation that the overzealous intervention may do more harm than good. What was behind that paper on retinopathy was that I treated a patient on the ward, a very a young man who'd come to Germany from Romania. He was an ethnic German, a Banata Deutsch, and he had moved to Germany, which and remember once again, this was this was before Gorbachev. So Romania was was behind the Iron Curtain. Anyway, he he was a young man with an HbA1c of about 13, you know, normal's about 5.6. So it was, it was just horrendous metabolic control over many, many years. And the reason for this was that of shortage of supply of insulin. So he was a type 1 diabetic patient, not a type 2 diabetic patient. And what had happened was that we then thought, oh, God, the poor guy has had metabolic control for such a long time that was miserable. We really need to get him back to normal control, to euglycemia as fast as we possibly could. 
Well, the result was that we probably triggered an explosion of his, his retinopathy and he developed proliferative retinopathy and we, we probably actually caused accelerated blindness or, or the on, accelerated onset of blindness. I mean, the retinopathy was, was there previously. It was pretty bad. But this manifestation of blindness in such a short while was probably something that we triggered by getting him to normal glycemia so quickly. The moral of the story was that in terms of, I, I guess reachieving glycemic control and homeostasis, being overzealous can be counterproductive. And, and that was the learning of that story. But that, that all goes into the same understanding. It, it all fits into that picture that we need to be self-reflective in what we do in medicine. And, and sometimes we make mistakes and we actually unintentionally harm patients, which is probably what we did at the time. And today, I think everybody agrees that good metabolic control is essential. But there also is an understanding that to dramatically lower blood glucose in patients with long-standing hyperglycemia is probably something that we need to be cautious about. Fascinating. So you mentioned evidence. I want to come on to that because, you know, 0.05, yep, it's it's correct. 0.052, I don't know. I think we need to do another trial. So years ago, I, I ran a session at the American College of Surgeons where we used a mock trial format to discuss the need to use all methods to prevent catheter-related bloodstream infections, CRBSIs. By then, there was a plethora of type 1 published evidence, Medical Society and Center for Disease Control guidelines on all the steps that you should take to mitigate CRBSI. Yet one surgeon at the end of this incredible presentation by some awesome, awesome folks. One surgeon stood up and said, I don't need evidence. I have my experience. How do we do a better job making evidence-based medicine, EBM, the sine qua non it should be? And how do we deal with this, these situations that we've got one intervention that's got a p-value of 0 0.052, yet people say, ah, yeah, no, no, let's, let's continue studying it. Doesn't there come a point where we have to say, let's do the right thing, continue to monitor what happens, and then change if necessary, rather than continuously study things and put people needlessly at risk? Isn't there an ethical issue? I, I'm going to stop rambling and let you answer. <laughs> Jonathan, thank you really very, very, very much for that question. And, and this is not rehearsed. You, you haven't, you know, I didn't ask you to ask me that question, but that's sort of, that, that's sort of the topic of what I'm doing at the moment that I want to pursue further. To a certain extent, that's my quest. You know, one of the things I'm, I'm doing is preparing a, a website and YouTube videos on statistical literacy for healthcare professionals. That's something I'm, I'm quite passionate about because I think we are doing ourselves a disfavor of misinterpreting evidence-based medicine from both counts. On the one hand, uh, sometimes we're being overzealous. And on the other hand, by rejecting it, I think we're doing ourselves a disfavor as well. So I think this is all about balance. And balance is, balance is sometimes difficult because it's hard work. You need to reflect upon things. So let me pick up the ball that you, that you put in front of me. So evidence-based medicine, in my opinion, is actually experience albeit it's collective and systematic experience. In other words, it's experience collected in a different way and packaged in a different way. So evidence is the foundation on which we practice medicine. I, th I think uh, without evidence, without systematic collective experience, I think we lack the legitimacy as professionals. It goes back to the, to the, to the question about why should patients do 
what we tell them to do. I think the only legitimacy we have is the evidence that we have. But this evidence can be very, very multifaceted. And in the book by David Sackett, probably one of one of the fathers, if not the the father of evidence-based medicine, at least promoting it, he spoke about the best available evidence. He was very, very cautious about people looking only at the gold standard of the randomized clinical trial and said, it's it's all about integrating evidence across domains. And that's where my other passion, Bayes' theorem, comes into it, because Bayes' theorem essentially is a tool of integrating evidence across domains. You, if you use Bayesian theory to update your understanding, then that's really how evidence evolves. And it's this evolution of evidence that I guess medicine is all of, all about. And, and that's really important to all of us that are in research, both within the pharmaceutical industry and outside. So I think the important thing is evidence only has many, many forms, as I said, and the randomized controlled clinical trial is just one of them. Evidence is always associated with uncertainty. And that's something where I think that's where the statistical literacy comes in, because we live in a probabilistic universe. There's always signal and there's always noise. And it's always the competition between the signal and the noise, which is what determines whether we gain insight. And it's this insight and understanding, as I said, that gives legitimacy to what we're doing. Now, Probabilities, and this is the interesting bit, and, and where, where then evidence from evidence-based medicine and evidence from experience, where they come together again. Probabilities apply to the evidence from clinical trials and, and studies, because what we are generally doing is we're describing distributions and we're, we're trying to assess estimates, either point estimates and the uncertainty around the estimates. And that, that's essentially what a mean and a, and a standard deviation or, or a variance are. If in, in other types of data, the medium and the interquartile range. So it's all about uncertainty because we live in a probabilistic universe. Now comes the tricky bit for the colleague that you cite. Probabilities, it's not only the uncertainty around the estimate that we generate from the study, but it's also the probabilities around the applicability of the evidence that we've got from the study to an individual patient. And that is what, what the, the medical practitioner is struggling with. On the one hand, we've got the study, we've got sort of, I would call it group medicine, which is what clinical trials are all about, characterizing responses in groups. And then we've got the situation that the individual practitioner faces, which is, how do I treat this patient? Because I don't treat generally an, an individual, when, it, when a physician faces a patient, they face a specific patient and not a collection of patients. In the end, obviously, these are related because populations are made up of individuals and individuals reflect or are an instance of a population. But the important thing that this tension between collective evidence and individual evidence. And the individual evidence is, is where the physician's coming from when he speaks of experience. And I think this is the bit that we really have to, have to integrate. You know, we have to appreciate the probabilistic nature of evidence and that we can get information from individual experience as much as we can get information from collective experience from clinical studies. The statistical issue with experience as that individual experience is vulnerable. The confidence intervals are very, very wide because it's n equals one. And at the same time, you don't know whether your experience is representative of the collective. In other words, you may be looking at an outlier and then to draw general conclusions from an outlier is, is very tricky because you're obviously wrong. And I think that's the, that's the tension that, that we see, and I think more education is necessary in reconciling 
these differences. In other words, collective experience, which is the clinical trial and clinical research, individual experience, and then applying those to, to individual patients. I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And unfortunately, the way statistics is taught, to, at least it was taught in the past, is not accessible, I believe, to, to many physicians. We, we need to teach statistics in another language, in the language of medicine and not the language of mathematics. That was probably the most eloquent description that I've heard of the issue. And I would commend you to write an editorial to that effect so that we can try to get some intelligence in, injected into what is otherwise uh, a situation where people are talking past one another. Well, my next question for you, again, based on my experience, I, it was something that got me quite heated a number of years ago. And I, in fact, wrote an article about this, which led to some interesting responses, um, shall we say. And I think it nicely ties together your German heritage, your interest in diabetes, and your involvement with the pharmaceutical industry. So I believe in 1512, Thomas Murner wrote a satirical plea against overreaction entitled, and you're going to have to forgive my pronunciation, Die Narrenbeschwörung, which means, can you, can you pronounce it for me, please, Uwe? Yeah, yeah, Die Narrenbeschwörung. Oh, said that you see much, much better. Well, it apparently for those non-German speakers, it means it's it's an the book was an appeal to fools, and it gave rise to the expression "Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater," and that was the title of the article I wrote. And I think I referenced the fact that in 1922, a young Canadian doctor, Frederick Banting, had an idea. He closed his growing medical practice and he collaborated with the scientist Charles Best, Professor McLeod, and Dr. Collett. The concept was to take pig pancreas and purify what came to be known as insulin. The Eli Lilly Company of Indianapolis, as it was then called, agreed to help, and the rest is history. Today, that kind of collaboration would be a challenge, certainly in America, because of all the legislation and suspicion concerning conflicts of interest around such working relationships. Those in power suggest that doctors should not be compensated for working with industry, that there's an inherent conflict of interest. In my opinion, they've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. What do you think? Thank you very, very much for that one. And that is a huge and hot topic. When I crossed into the pharmaceutical industry, I said I'd crossed into the onto the dark side I was I was working in the student union or active in the student union while I was a student and you know going I did not study medicine to join the pharmaceutical industry now many many years later I'm very very happy that I did and and I think the issue at stake is is prejudice we we know that human nature is complex and that we have academics that do things that are probably shouldn't be done are quite unacceptable and we have people in the industry that have very, very high ethical standards and are really interested in, in doing the best for society and for the collective. So I think that the issue at stake is that you, as you point out with the throwing out the baby with the bathwater, is that it's not black and white. It's, it's very, very, very many, many shades of grey. And I think one of the things is we can't have our cake and eat it. So what's the topic at heart? The topic at heart, and, and we're going to open up that later on, uh, perhaps, it's doctors. Why do doctors prescribe drugs? Well, they prescribe drugs because obviously the drugs give benefit to the patients. But often, the, obviously, there are competing drugs. There are, there are more than one offerings. And then interestingly enough, if we look at the market dynamics, 
generally, if you have, let's say, several ACE inhibitors, several beta blockers, several ARBs, whatever it is, there will be a, a small number of market leaders and all the others. So it seems to be that the market is responsive to, to marketing and commercial activities. And, and commercial and, and drug companies are commercial enterprises. So, so one has to understand that. So, so there is, you know, we, we do live in a marketing-based world. If, if you look at influencers on, on, the, on the internet, if you look at the fact that today on the, on the clothes, we wear the labels on the outside to show that we can afford them and that driving cars of certain brands is associated with social stature, that just shows the vulnerability of human nature to a certain extent. And I don't want to expand on that because I have no expertise on that. However, collaboration between academia and industry is essential, in my mind, for the future of clinical research, a future of the evolution of medicine, and to essentially put a firewall between the two will harm both. Academia will suffer materially, and and industry will suffer materially, and as a consequence, both will lose, and and innovation, uh, I think, will, will, will not be as fruitful as it was in the past. So I think the issue at stake is is really about how can we manage these conflicts of interest in a constructive way. I, I don't have the answers to that. And and there, you know, in the past there have been physicians that have probably exploited the industry, and the industry has probably done things that it, it shouldn't have. And so I, I, I understand where, where regulators are coming from and where critical voices come from. But I also agree totally with your title. You cannot throw the baby out with the bathwater. And it's, as I said, it's, it's not black or white. I've come across some of the most remarkable scientists and the most ethical individuals in the industry. And it's a really a pity that they are stamped simply because of where they work. I agree with you 100%. In fact, some of the more... Uh, some of the you know squeakiest uh, wheels in this debate have been people who've said that if you if you're a doctor and you work within a pharmaceutical company you shouldn't be allowed to publish. I mean it's utter utter nonsense, and I'm glad to know that you know a voice of reason. Why should I be surprised? So you and I first met on a project to educate people about biosimilars. Assume I know nothing and tell that story. Well. The topic of biosimilars has really has to do with with the way you know, and and it's 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 a segue from what we just said. So, so how does innovation work? I mean, essentially, um, innovation requires a lot of money and carries a lot of risk. And and so that organisations engage in this and start this journey, there has to be some sort of incentive in place. And and the patent is such an incentive. That's the logic behind patent legislation. That if you if you come up with a really new, really good idea, then you you are offered a monopoly to incentivize your investment in in this. And that's one of the driving machines, no doubt about it, in in pharmaceutical medicine. It's the financial reward and promise that drives a lot of research into new therapeutic opportunities. However, societies put a limit on this. In other words, this is not an endless incentive. And, all, and, and there, although there are some activities ongoing on evergreening patents, that's really not what, was, what the idea was all about. So biosimilars. Biologics have been around a long time. Uh, we discussed insulin, and that's been a biologic since the early 1920s. However, more recently, monoclonal antibodies were introduced into the therapeutic armamentarium. And in certain diseases, they've absolutely revolutionized therapy and and patient outcomes. This happened roughly 
plus minus 15 to 20 years ago. So the patents on, on some of the first monoclonal antibodies have expired. And that means the monopoly ends and other manufacturers, if they so wish, can make copies of these products. So now there is the opportunity to make copies of monoclonal antibodies. And, and a lot of activity has gone into this into the last 10 years. And in Europe, we have a, a, I don't know the number exactly, it's changing from day to day, but we have a large number of biosimilar versions of biologics. In other words, the, the patent has expired and now other companies are making these biologics and offering them. And obviously, when there's competition, then prices, there's prices fall and that makes these drugs more affordable. And as they become more affordable, more people can benefit from these, these really revolutionary therapeutics. In addition to that, because they're more, more affordable and cheaper, essentially, the pressure on the healthcare system in, in terms of cost pressure is also reduced. And this is crucial because I think this is part of the survival of the healthcare system and the pharmaceutical industry because it drives innovation on the side of the pharmaceutical companies because they no longer have the patent protection and thus no longer the, 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 the margins that they used to have. But on the other side, it also liberates funds that the healthcare systems can use on new innovations. In other words, if, if you're spending money on old innovations, you don't have the money to spend on new innovations, and that's most prominent, I guess, in oncology. Anyway, so what's a biosimilar? A biosimilar is a quasi-generic, generic in terms of commercial concept of a biologic. It's not generic in terms of the concept of molecular structure, and that has to do with the complexity of biologics. So what makes the issue of making a copy of a biologic potentially contentious. And this is where we started 10 years ago. Today, we know that all of these, the issues that were raised can be managed, can be managed well. But when we started on the journey of biosimilars, this wasn't quite certain. And there were a lot of voices out there saying it couldn't be done. And, and obviously, it can be done. So what was the issue? Well, a biologic is a drug that is manufactured by by living cells. These are large molecules that are so complex that they can't be manufactured by chemical synthesis. So we use cells. We introduce genetic material into cells, uh, cell lines. That they, they may be, ideally, they're, they're, they're a human cell line. We introduce genetic material, and accordingly, the, the cell then uh, is introduced. It's expanded. The cell pool is expanded and introduced into a fermenter. And these cells then manufacture the product for which the genetic material has been introduced into them. Now, the issue here is that when cells make these products, a say in all of this. In other words, when a cell makes a monoclonal antibody, it, it makes the primary structure of the antibody because that is defined by the genetic code. But the post-translational modifications, in other words, the processing later on, things such as disulfide bridges and glycosylation products, um, they, they may differ from cell to cell because that has to, to do with the microenvironment that the cell is in. So the consequence is that a biologic such as a monoclonal antibody is actually a blend of products. This is true for the originator as much as it is for the biosimilar. And that is the bit that people have been contentious about and saying you cannot make an absolutely identical copy. And that is true. You cannot. But that's also true for the originator because, because every batch is unique. And particularly after manufacturing changes, a biologic, an originator biologic, evolves as well. So essentially, the whole topic around biosimilars and the question around what makes an acceptable copy of a biologic is a question all about corridors. Are you within a corridor of similarity that essentially gives you the 
the same benefit risk. And that was a that was a discussion that you know we had over the last 10 years. You know, can it be done? And it can be done. And today we, we have many, many products that are safe and efficacious and can be used as appropriate stand-ins to the originals that they are replacing. I hope that long answer answers the question. Before you and I met, I knew nothing about the topic and you did a marvellous job educating me. And I, I hope that that inspires people to look and learn a bit further about it. There's one thing I did want to dig into just briefly, a quick definition from you. Everyone knows about the placebo effect where a biologically inactive substance induces a response in someone, whether it's due to psychology or what. What's the nocebo effect? N-O-C-E-B-O. Give us a definition. The nocebo effect is is essentially, it goes into the same thing. You know, it goes in the same direction. The, the placebo is effect is attributed to expectations and beliefs. In other words, if you believe that, that you are being given an active substance, then you believe that you have the benefit that the active substance is, is giving you, and then you attribute changes. You just feel better. You know, if somebody says, I'm, I'm giving you here this fantastic drug and it's, it's brand new and it's experimental, but the evidence is really compelling, then chances are that you're going to have an expectation that this stuff's going to work and it's going to make your life better. And, and that's the placebo effect. Now, the nocebo effect, to a certain extent, is exactly the same, but goes in the opposite direction. So let's assume that I've been told by my, I'm a young physician, I've been told by my department head to give you as a patient this drug, and I don't like the drug, I don't think the evidence is compelling, and I'm, I'm really not happy about it. And so my aura, to a certain extent, speaking... <laughs> In a, let's say in a metaphysical term, but in very practical terms, the way I introduce this drug to you is going to be very, very different in general than if I were enthusiastic about the drug. In other words, I'm going to come in and say, "Look, uh, good morning, Mrs. Smith. Um, we've got this. Uh, we've, we've got this new drug, um, and, and it's supposed to be. I guess it's supposed to be quite good, but well, we don't know, but." But I, I, I've been told to give it to you, and, and, and I guess it, 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 no harm done. And, and well, let's just see uh, what happens, right? And I can give the same, the, the same drug to you saying, ah, hi, Mrs. Smith. We've got this absolutely fantastic opportunity for you. Uh, we've been given this chance to give you this great new drug. And unsurprisingly, scientific evidence has shown, studies have shown that the response of the patient differ very, very much depending on how a drug is presented to them. Isn't that fascinating? Absolutely. So I want to move on uh, in the last few minutes. Tell us what you're up to now. You've got this company called Arateus, which you founded quite some time back. What, what, what are you doing? What, what, what are you working on? Arateus, as you said, is a company I, I founded a while back, and it was, it was originally founded as a consultancy. But, you know, and, and it's wonderful to, to close the conversation, I guess, to a certain extent with, with this or, or to, to tie it all together, because the story that I've just told you, a little bit about my life, about diabetes, about research in the pharmaceutical industry, about evidence-based medicine, uh, about drug development and all of that, it all comes together in Areteos. So over the years, when I was working in the clinic, I actually noticed that I believe, for example, that the way we look at diabetes, in particular type 1 diabetes, is, is rather confusing. So every medical student learns that insulin lowers blood glucose, and, and insulin and enables glucose to enter the cells. Well, the reality of that is that it's probably not true, no matter even if it's, it's stated in almost every, every medical textbook. If you look at 
where the islets of Langerhans in the, the pancreatic islets are, that was something I was kind of puzzled because they're at the tail of the pancreas. Most of the pancreas, most of what goes on in the pancreas is at the head of the pancreas, but these little islands are at the opposite end. And so I asked myself up from an anatomy, why there? And then it all of a sudden one day it dawned upon me, and, and that is because the islet is the blood that flows through the island is sampled from the aorta before blood leaves for any other organs. So if you wanted to know what the concentration of glucose in the central compartment is, that is the smartest place to put a sensing organ. So the way I understand insulin is that insulin's a fuel gauge. And what it really does, it coordinates substrate use in, in the major tissues that use glucose, which is the liver, the fat, and the muscle. And, and that's where GLUT4, the insulin-sensitive glucose transporter, is predominantly found. It protects the brain from hypoglycemia. So it's actually, in my mind, it's a permissive signal, but it doesn't, it's not about enabling glucose movement into the cells. It's actually preventing glucose movement into the cells when the brain needs it. So I started looking at diabetes differently. And over the years, I've, I've had some ideas over molecules and approaches to, to new drugs in diabetes that because I was employed by a drug company, I, I couldn't pursue. And so now I've decided towards the end of my career that I'm, I'm really going to pursue this dream and look at these, at these drug opportunities. In other words, these modes of action and look at either repurposing uh, things that other people have worked on or things that other people have, have dropped. And that's what Aretheus is all about. Aretheus is, is focused on, on metabolic disorders or metabolic fluxes and and really about looking at diabetes differently and seeing which therapeutic opportunities arise when you look at at the world in a different way it's, it's all about inverse probabilities and and all of what we've talked about inverse probability statistical understanding about um, systems biology all comes together in this company and so it's to a certain extent it's a dream come true I just need to get funding to keep the dream alive, but I'm, I'm working on that as, as well. And, and in addition, as I said, I, I, I do the, the education topics because I am passionate about learning and understanding and education. I'm doing that as well. So that's where I am today, as I said, trying to live the dream. Well, it's a perfect way to draw to this conversation to a close. And it's, it's a perfect uh, closing of the circle because it's where you started. And we're just going to have to have you back on to talk about what you're up to in the near future. But in closing, I love asking all my guests a version of this question. If you had three wishes that would lead to improvements in medicine, what would they be in healthcare? Whatever. Three wishes. I'm granting you three wishes. What would they be, Uwe? I think if I, if I looked at healthcare overall, I mean, the first, and I'm making this up as I'm going along, so I haven't thought this through. But the first thing I think is a more reflected and balanced perspective on medicine. In other words, that we understand that biology is a gambler, that we live in a probabilistic universe, and that we need to understand uncertainty and probabilities, and that except for death and taxes, there are no certainties. And we, and, and, and as that the, that the medical profession embraces the probabilistic nature of its art. And it goes back, I think it's attributed to William Osler, isn't it? It's medicine is, is, is the 
science of uncertainty and the art of probability or something like that. I'm not sure if I got the, the quote right. But but that we that we really embrace the probabilistic nature of what it is and we move away from this desire of certainty because we're you know, it, it goes back to Nassim Taleb and fooled by randomness. Um, if, if we don't appreciate the probabilistic nature of what we do, we are doing ourselves a, a disfavor. And so accordingly, I, I think my next wish is, is the doctors become more numerically and probabilistically proficient. And, and in order to do that is that they get taught better in terms of statistics and probabilities. Because the way I was taught was by people with a, with, a, with, a, with a mathematical perspective on life and, and, and clinicians don't think that way. And so we need, we need this to be taught in a way that is accessible to us. And, and it all comes together, I, I guess, in, in what I would call grounded balance. Okay. Um, yeah, that, that's where I think we, we all need to go together in, 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 in medicine, both, both the healthcare professionals and the consumers of medicine, because we're all, all obviously quite fiercely judged in, in, in an environment that is fraught with uncertainty and that we are trying to make the best in, 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 in dealing with it. So is that an overarching wish or is, is that all three combined into one? Or I think they all come together as one, really. And, and I think that's, that's really a lot of it. You know, in science, we tend to slice and dice because if we look at the big picture, it's too confusing for us. So we take out little dots so that, that, that make it more manageable for us. But at the same time, we have to realize that all of these dots, these individual slices and cubes and whatever, they all come together in a big picture. And that's, the, that's one of the reasons why in vitro research doesn't always translate into in vivo research, because what works in isolation doesn't necessarily work when it is embedded in the system of, of biology. Yeah, well, if there's education to be done uh, on this and any other topic, you're going to be top of my list if I get to choose of people to call. Sadly, that's all we have time for today. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Uwe Goodat, for taking the time to join me today and, frankly, for all you're doing for medical science and education. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much. It's, it's wonderful to, to be, I guess, also to listen, to be listened to. The one thing is to have ideas and, and to be on a mission to a certain extent. But the other is, is the opportunity to have somebody who, who appreciates that and, and is, is willing to listen. So thank you very, very, very much. And I also thank the listeners and hope they enjoy um, some of my reflections. Thanks again. Well, I've, I've certainly enjoyed getting to know you over the period of time since we first met, and I'm looking forward to many more conversations, and I'm planning on getting my, my sorry butt to Geneva so we can have that uh, conversation on or by the lake. Well, folks, if you've enjoyed this episode, please like us on social media. I believe that's what you're supposed to do. That's the EMJ podcast, and you can subscribe for future episodes. It is, of course, free and dig into our archives. There are plenty of wonderful podcasts there. And please join us next week for another foray into the amazing world of medicine. Until then, stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now. <laughs>